Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. So we are in a message series called Elijah, and it's on the life and ministry of the prophet who? Elijah. Uh, So far, Nathan has actually given us some great background as he's taken us through the life of Elijah. Uh, Elijah lived during a very difficult time in Israel's history. It was a time of urgent need. Uh, There was a king named Omri who ruled in Israel. And Omri turned away from the true God, Yahweh, and he turned to idols. And unfortunately, he left that legacy for his son, whose name was Ahab. But scripture tells us that Ahab was worse. He was worse. He followed in his father's footsteps, but worse. He married a Phoenician woman named Jezebel, and then he began to worship her gods, Baal and Asherah. Not only that, he actually led the people in worshiping Baal and Asherah. Um, We find out in 1 Kings 16 that Ahab built an altar to the Baals in a temple that he built for Baal in Samaria, which was the capital of Israel. And there he also erected an Asherah pole. Now, Baal was thought to be the storm god. He was believed by the nation surrounding Israel to be the one who blessed people with rain. And he had a wife, Baal had a wife, and her name was Asherah. And she was thought to be the goddess of love and fertility. She was thought to be the one who blessed the womb with life, whether it be um, livestock or whether it be um, descendants in your family line. She was thought to be the one who blessed people with, blessed the womb with life. Now, it was bad enough that uh, Ahab led people to be unfaithful to Yahweh and to turn away from him and to worship false gods. But even worse than this, I want to give you a picture of just the level of evil and corruption. Uh, The practices that were associated with the worship of Baal and Asherah were just horrific. Um, So sometimes we think when we read these texts, we think something like, well, you know, it was bad. It was bad. But like they just sort of substituted Baal and Asherah for Yahweh. And like, eh, you know, how bad was it? But, you know, the worship of Yahweh uh, is pure and good. Um, Worship of Baal and Asherah included things like um, temple prostitution and included things like child sacrifice. And these types of things were done because it was thought that it would appease Baal and Asherah. And then Baal and Asherah would then bless the land with rain. Um, Asherah would bless the wombs with life. And so, so this is the level of corruption and this was the level of, um, of evil that was taking place in the land at the time. But Yahweh, the true God, uh, had rescued this people from slavery. And he had made promises to them. And his promises can be summed up in this. He promised to be the source of life for Israel. He promised to function as their source of life, their source of blessing, their source of provision, in every way. And the way that he actually made those promises and established his relationship was called a covenant. 
In the ancient world, um, people made covenants. It was a pretty common way that people made agreements with each other. Often, those covenants were made between kings and their people. And so this was the case with God. God adopted this common practice of the ancient world, and he sort of met Israel right where they were at, and he used this common practice to establish a relationship. And one of the things we read in the Old Testament, and sometimes we read like these lists of blessings and, and curses or consequences, and, we, and we're just like, man, is God just being nasty? Or like, what's going on here? One of the things that we need to realize is that if you like dig up an ancient covenant, like in the dirt, when archaeologists find examples of ancient covenants, it's a common feature of the covenant to have lists of blessings and lists of curses. And so what the deal was was this. A common feature of a covenant was that a king would say to his people, be faithful to me, serve me, and these will be the blessings. Okay, this was the case with Israel. Um, be faithful to me, serve me. If not, these will be the consequences. And so, so again, that's a common feature of a covenant in the ancient world. And we see that. We see that when we read God's covenant with Israel. Um, we see that God had actually promised to be the source of life, the source of rain, the source of fertility. Uh, I'll read you a couple examples of that. Um, here's a couple examples from Deuteronomy, a couple excerpts from Deuteronomy 11. So in this, in this verse, Moses says this, the land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from beginning, the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will send rain on the land in its season. So the blessing was rain for faithfulness to Yahweh. Moses goes on to say, on the other hand, on the other hand, if your hearts are enticed by the gods of your neighbors and you turn away, you bow down to them, you trust in them, you worship them, then he said, then I'll send a wake-up call. I'll withhold the rain. I'll withhold the rain. Similarly, um, I'll read you a couple excerpts from Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Um, the Lord did not set his affection on you, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb. So fast forward now to the time of Elijah. The nation did exactly, in time, what Moses warned them not to do. They were enticed by the gods of the surrounding nations. They trusted in them as their source of life for things like rain and life from the womb. And so God said, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He withheld the rain as a wake-up call. And in response, um, Elijah went to the king and he said to him, it's not going to rain until God says that it's going to rain. And do you know how long that period ended up being by the time we reached this morning's passage? Three years. 
Three years. We reached this morning's passage. It has not rained for three years, and the situation is dire. So that's the setting. That's the background. I want you to take a look at 1 Kings chapter 18. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 21. 1 Kings 18, 1 to 21. Um, as you read it in your Bible silently, uh, Terry's actually going to read it aloud. So follow along as you listen to Terry read. 1 Kings 18, 1 to 21. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill off any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say Elijah is here? I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I had a, a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But the people said, Nothing. 
So where this passage starts is it's a time of dire need. It's a time of urgent or dire need, dire circumstances. It's been three years. There's a drought in the land, um, so much so that King Ahab and the palace administrator Obadiah are, are actually searching throughout the land to find anywhere where there's grass, just something green, a little patch of grass to feed the livestock. Their next move is basically to kill their only ongoing resource of food, which is the livestock. So they kill the livestock, then there's nothing left. And so it really does seem to Obadiah that uh, starvation is on the horizon, that, that soon probably he and many others will starve to death. But there's something that he doesn't know. In verse 1, the reader, along with Elijah, catches a glimpse of God's unseen movement, at least unseen to Obadiah. Uh, as, as Terry was reading, did you catch what, what did... What did we find out along with Elijah that Obadiah doesn't know yet? It's in verse 1. In verse 1, we find out that God's already decreed that the drought's over. Uh, In fact, the reason Obadiah comes across Elijah is he's on his way to present himself to King Ahab, which God said will be followed by rain. So God is already moving. He's already made a decree. Uh, The drought is already effectually over, but Obadiah can't see it yet. It's God's unseen movement. On the flip side, there's actually something that Elijah can't see yet, that he finds out from Obadiah. Two different times we find out something that Obadiah says that's God's gracious, life-giving movement that Elijah didn't know about yet. Now, two times if you read on, if you were to read on later, In chapter 18, you'll see Elijah says, I'm the only prophet left. Now, it probably felt like that to Elijah. I'm the only prophet left because Jezebel was going around systematically killing God's prophets. And so Elijah's experience was, I'm the only prophet left. Here's the only thing. He might have felt that way, but it's not true. We actually find out twice in this passage that God prompted Obadiah to hide a hundred prophets in two different caves and at great cost to himself to resource these prophets with food and water. Now, uh, just do a little simple math. There's at least how many prophets then? 101. There's at least 101 prophets left to serve the Lord. But Elijah says more than once, I'm the only one left. It's just that he had not seen yet with his eyes the unseen movement of God. And so I want to camp here just for a little while, that just because we can't yet see the unseen movement of God, it doesn't mean that God's not moving. Because we haven't seen and we haven't felt God moving yet, we sang this morning, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, what? You're working. God's already working, even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, because that's an objective fact. Because spiritual reality goes on around us, whether or not we've caught up with it, whether or not like we're in sync yet in our hearts and minds with with what God is doing, whether or not we've seen it with our eyes, God is already working. God, uh, Jesus actually said, my father's always at work. God is doing good things. God's moving ahead with good things. He goes before us like the pillar of cloud in the wilderness. He went before the Israelites. God is the God who goes before us, and he does good things. He's leading our lives to good places. The thing is, for you and I, 
Um, like Israel, we have times of urgent need. We have times of urgent need. It's too easy for us to conclude quickly that God's not doing anything and that maybe God won't do anything if we don't see or feel him doing anything yet. So take some time this morning. Ask yourself this question. Don't think too much about it. It's probably right weighing on your heart and mind. What is the greatest need that you feel the weight of right now? What's the greatest need you feel the weight of right now? Maybe it's a material need. Maybe it's a relational need. Maybe it's an emotional need. Whatever it is, if you haven't yet seen the movement of God in that area, you might say to yourself, well, he's just not moving and he's just not going to. You may feel the absence or the silence of God. You may feel angry or anxious about that. Um, You may feel like God is never going to do something because he hasn't done something now. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Here's often the way that it works. I've seen this play out over and over in my 45 years on this planet. Here's often how it works. Before you can see God moving, and before you even know that you have a need, God's already gone before you. And he's already graciously doing a life-giving movement, blessing, providing. I want to give you a couple examples of that, just real briefly. I want to just to give you like almost like an IV of encouragement for a couple of minutes. Let me give you some examples of that that I've seen in my own life, because I've seen that over and over and over. Uh, materially, materially. Our family has often felt the weight of material need, or at least at times, at seasons. Over and over and over again, we could tell you stories about how we felt the weight of material need. But uh, God blessed and provided. And we looked in the rearview mirror before we ever knew about, before we ever felt the provision of that need. Before we ever even knew about the need, and before we ever saw that need met, God was already laying the groundwork for his gracious life-giving work to provide and to bless. Um, I could tell you many stories. Um, I could probably tell you too many stories about that. But let me tell you just one. I'm just going to encourage you with one. And I've told a number of you this before. Um, So one time, my wife comes to me and she says, can we set aside a little bit of money um, to save up for new furniture? She said, we need new furniture. And I said, I really don't know where we'd find that in our budget, you know, to put a, set aside a little bit of money each month for furniture. So I said, I, I, I don't think we can. And then she said, well, can I pray for it? And, you know, full disclosure, I'll confess to you. I sort of cynically said, yeah, knock yourself out, pray for it, you know. But if you know my wife, like my wife is just power, powerfully passionate about prayer. And she goes to the Lord with these things. And it's not an entitlement thing. Like she thinks like, oh, maybe God do, maybe God will do something different. Like she just goes to God and says, like, you own everything, and you can do something different, but would you bless me with new furniture? And so she was praying about that. It was just like here and there, she was praying about that. And then a couple weeks later, we were sitting at somebody's house. We're getting to know this family, and um, they, go like, they go, you know, we used to own a furniture store. They said, we used to own a furniture store. And we said, really? And they said, yeah, we have this, this storage unit that's just full of new furniture, they said, we really, it's just sitting there. We're paying for it. We really have nothing to do with it. Um, we have no need of it. And they said, do you know anybody who has need of it? And we were, we were just blown away. And at that moment, we realized that years before, we were even aware of the need. This furniture sat in a showroom, and how many people walked past it and didn't buy it? 
because God had it earmarked for our family. Um, years ago, they closed down this store, loaded this furniture in the, on, onto a truck and brought it to the storage unit and just literally sat there for years, like waiting for us to need new furniture. And we, we just realized days before our need, God put it on the heart of this faithful family to say, hey, do you know anybody who needs furniture? So God, that's God's unseen movement, you know? Might be like a little thing, but God went before us. Like before we even knew about our need, God was already blessing and providing. So uh, materially, God has often, often gone before us. Uh, relationally, I can think of some seasons where I felt the weight of need, the weight of relational need. I can remember this time in particular when I was in college, I, and I was sitting in my dorm room, it was my, my dorm room, which was an apartment, and all my roommates were out with significant others. And at the time, I didn't have a significant other. And I can just remember feeling almost like this, this heavy weight of loneliness. And I can remember at the time thinking, you know, I just sort of never thought that I would think this. But like, what if I'm the guy amongst all my friends who like everyone else gets married and I end up being the lonely middle-aged guy? And for some reason, I was just having a pity party that night. And I was actually writing a paper from the book of Hebrews. I was writing a paper on the book of Hebrews. And I came across chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And they talk about we don't have a high priest. The writer says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. So let us draw near to the throne of God with confidence to find grace and help in our time of need. And for some reason, I was just inspired to stop and say, God, would you help me in my time of need? I just feel this weight of loneliness. Now, I can't tell you I woke up the next morning and like all, and, and like that whole, all the problems, I did feel better the next morning. Can't tell you that whole problem was solved, but I can tell you this. I can tell you I see in the rear view mirror what the answer to that prayer was. And it was a couple months later, I was just in the library at the college and I sat down and just ended up talking to this, uh, this young lady, Kim, who was a missionary kid from Germany. And we had a 45 minute conversation and she actually went back to her dorm room after our conversation, and she said to her roommate, she said, I'm either going to never talk to that guy again, or I'm going to marry him. That's what she said. And um, I went back to my dorm room. I plopped down in an old ratty chair that I had dragged out of a dumpster. And I remember saying to myself, I think I'm going to marry that, that, that young lady. And two years later, two and a half years later, we got married. And it has, as we've reflected back in the rearview mirror, some of the things that have struck me and my wife is that years before we had met, even little things God was putting in place, like uh, I had the choice in high school to take Spanish as a language or German as a language. Well, God knew I was going to marry somebody who grew up for 10 years in Germany. So I had a strong sense to take German, and I did it. Three years of German. As part of that three years of German, I was, uh, went on an educational trip, visited Germany for 10 days. I drove on a tour bus right past the front door of my wife's house in the Black Forest. Um, I did not yet know my in-laws. They let me know when they met me. They had been praying for me, though they didn't know my name. They had been praying for me for years. And it's been an unfolding realization that the exact things that God wanted to do in each of our lives to, to make us more whole, to, to heal our wounds, that he has been doing 
through specific experiences, specific tools, specific giftings that he's given each of us so we can be that avenue for God's healing work in each other's lives. That wasn't just something that sort of like happened. That was something that God was doing for years before we met. And so that's God's unseen movement. Even before we can see the need, even before we can see God's movement to meet the need, God is already moving. And lastly, I'll just give you a testimony about emotional need. There have been many times in my life I've experienced emotional need as well. Um, One time in particular that I can think of, and a number of you have walked through this season with me, about four years ago, my brother died suddenly of a heart attack. And one thing that struck me as I worked through the grief process, uh, all those, a lot of you have lost people know, like there's all kinds of kind of like uh, emotions. You're bouncing all over the place, like when you lose someone, especially someone who your history was so deeply intertwined with. And so like you feel hopeful one day, and then like the next day you just feel like, like almost like so, so down you can barely get out of bed. And so as I just walked through the different emotions and kind of like worked through my grief process and, and um, like pro- wrestled with these different things with God, I, I realized that a couple of weeks before I found out that my brother had passed away, God had put on my heart to read this book. It was called The Severe Mercy by Sheldon Vonnegut. And in the book, it was, a, it was a biography of this couple. And I'll give you a kind of a spoiler-free description of something from the book. In the book, Sheldon has to work through losing a loved one. And, and, and he sort of questions God. And he, um, he kind of like works through all, of, all the emotions that are just bouncing all over the place. And he sort of works through the process of making peace with why, why this happened and why God had allowed it. And I realized that weeks before I even knew that my brother had passed away, God was already giving me the tools. Like he already gave me a story. He already shared someone else's experience with me because he had prompted me to read this book. I had, a special, I had actually a specific memory of, of a college roommate saying, you know, you should read this book. And for some reason, I actually said, I actually said to God, God, what should I read next? What should I read next? Because I usually have something going on, like I'll, I'll have like a book of the Bible and maybe something else spiritually edifying going on alongside that um, in my kind of my daily quiet time. And so, uh, so sometimes, not always, but sometimes I'll say, God, what should I read next? And I had a strong sense that I should read this book. And I realized in retrospect that God was preparing me. He was giving me words and language and categories and experiences to sort of wrestle through my grief, grief process with him involved. So God was graciously going before me. Um, that was God's unseen movement. Before I even knew about the need, God was already moving. Before I could see God's movement, God was already moving. But here's kind of the thing. Here's the thing, and this is what Elijah gets to with the people of Israel. Um, as fallen people, as human beings that are fallen, if we don't quickly see the movement of God and we're in, a, in the midst of urgent need, we often don't turn to God. We actually turn to cheap substitutes or counterfeits. We, we shift our trust from the creator who is our source of life to created things that can never be our source of life. And this is exactly what Elijah addressed with Israel in, in these last couple of verses of 1 to 21. Um, in an agrarian society like the ancient Near East, rain was life and death. Rain was life and death. 
And so you can, you can understand how it would be so enticing when your neighbors come along and they say, there's this God and he's the storm God. And if you appease him, then he will send rain. You can understand how it would be easy for them to be enticed to trust in and to bow down to this God. Um, in the ancient Near East, it was a patriarchal society. And so heirs, especially male heirs, were particularly related to inheritance and land ownership and social status, financial provision. And so it was an urgent need to have many descendants. And so now your neighbors come along and they say, we have a God for that. Um, there's the goddess Asherah, Baal's wife Asherah. And she is the goddess of fertility. And if you appease her, then she will give you life from the womb. And so, so they believed the lie and they traded the creator for created things. And this is what Elijah addresses with Israel. He pleads with them to have undivided hearts, undivided hearts. Um, look at verse 21 again. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. So in this style that's sort of reminiscent of all these grand speeches of Moses and Joshua, Elijah basically says to him, who is your source of life? Ahab, Israel, decide once and for all. Who is your true source of life? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal and Asherah? If it's Baal and Asherah that blesses you with rain and blesses you with children, ultimately, if that's your source of life, then trust in them. Okay, decide once and for all now. But if it is truly Yahweh, if he's good for his word, then wait on him. Give weight to him. Make him your go-to to trust in for life. Now, oftentimes I've noticed um, in smaller group settings when people are talking about passages like this, and I feel this, I feel this too, when we read these great epic speeches of the Old Testament, it's almost like, like watching Braveheart or some of these movies. Like we want to stand up and cheer when there's like a smackdown on idols. Like we want to say, um, wow, like this is, this is amazing. Like what a, like Elijah's trash talking idols or like Moses or Joshua trash talking idols. This is amazing because they're not real. But I think one of the reasons why we have an impulse to stand up and cheer rather than to reflect and repent is because it's hard for us to see the connection between ancient Near Eastern idolatry and our own modern lives and hearts. Um, the reality is you and I don't have an Asherah pole or like a statue of Baal. I'd be a little concerned about you if you did. Um, you're not going to bow down to an Asherah pole or a statue of Baal this week. But you and I do struggle with having divided hearts. We struggle with having divided hearts. So you and I do struggle with having an urgent need, maybe not seeing the life-giving, gracious movement of God yet in that particular area. And we struggle with just grabbing onto a created thing, being enticed by it, trusting in it, bowing down to it, rather than the living God who is the source of life. When we feel the urgent need um, of an empty checking account or a financial burden that we don't know how we're going to take care of, we struggle to trust in things like work, our own efforts, our own blood, sweat, and tears as our source of life, rather than resting in God and seeing our work as a way, an avenue for God to bless and provide as only he can. When we feel the urgent need for relational belonging and acceptance, we struggle 
uh, to trust in people-pleasing and manipulation and power plays in relationships with other people rather than in Yahweh as our source of life. We struggle to find our worth and identity in those things rather than finding our worth and our identity in the one who unconditionally loves us, the one who died for us, the one who pursues us, the one who adopts us into his family, the one who has a beautiful plan for our lives. When we feel the urgent need for peace in the midst of anxiety, we struggle to trust in things like social media or entertainment or junk food or addictions as our source of life rather than finding peace and rest in the only one who in time can mend our broken hearts and truly satisfy our longings. Tim Keller writes this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Keller says, the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. And so Elijah's rallying cry to Israel it's God's rallying cry to you and I today. If, if Yahweh is God, then trust him. But if created things like work or people-pleasing or um, junk food, if those things truly can't provide a sense of meaning for our lives, then why would we look to them for life to fill our lifeless places? Why would we look to them as our source of life if they truly don't and can't provide a sense of ultimate meaning? Shift your trust to the living God instead. Now, as I said, until the day that we die, you and I will struggle with these things, okay? This is not sort of like a one-time, I'm gonna decide to fix this, and when I leave, it's fixed. This is, this is a lifetime. As we walk with God, like he shapes us, we have something that Elijah didn't have. And we have something that the people of Israel didn't have. And that's through our faith in Jesus and our union with him, we have God's presence permanently indwelling us, living in us. And as we walk with God, he grows the fruit in us, the fruit that gives life to our lifeless places. And so no matter of effort can make this change, no matter of effort can actually mold us into people who trust and treasure God above all. There's no measure of effort that can change our hearts of stone that want what they want into hearts of flesh that trust and treasure God above all. Now, followers of Christ have known this and they've expressed this in beautiful ways for thousands of years. Here's just one of those ways. 1,200 years ago, I'm gonna read you some words that were written. Um, and we've lost the name of the person who has originally written them. But they were written in Old Irish, and these are the words translated into English 1,200 years ago. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Uh, riches I heed not, nor man's empty ways. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. So the writer says this. He says, look, 
I can't do it. God, I can't do it. You increasingly be my vision. You mold me and shape me into the kind of person who trusts and treasures God above all. Mold me and shape me into the kind of person who trusts and treasures God above my small-minded vision for my own life, above my best thoughts and ideas, above my money and possessions, above any other created thing that bumps God off the throne. And in 1919, the words that I just read for you were actually put to music. There was an old Irish folk tune called Slain, and these words were put with that music, and the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, was born. So we're going to close today with singing the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Um, just invite you to stand. And Sam's going to lead us, and Sam and the, and the band are going to lead us in Be Thou My Vision. It's a beautiful song. As you sing, don't just sing a beautiful song. This beautiful song is your prayer. It's your prayer to invite God's spirit to increasingly mold you and shape you into a person who trusts in and treasures God above all else. Let's sing this song together. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my
those who have laid down their lives for us. Um, just lift up gratitude to God for his good blessings. We look forward to just gathering again and worshiping. God bless you. Have a great day tomorrow and a fantastic week.